things that are slightly nonsensical, things that we don't expect, things that don't seem entirely logical, do have the strange compensating advantage of garnering a lot of our attention. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. All right, our guest today, because I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host now, Dubos, for this episode, our guest today is literally the one and only. Yeah, you could say that for a lot of people. Rory is a one and only. Rory Sutherland, who has been at Ogilvy for 34 years as a creative director and also as vice chairman for the last 17 years. Rory is a TED Global speaker and the author of Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Rory knows so much. He, like, oh my God, he's a walking encyclopedia of marketing, advertising, innovation. I mean, we touched on so many fascinating things in this conversation. Dubose, what were some of the highlights for you? Uh, it's hard to summarize everywhere we went with this conversation, but Rory is a font of information and had amazing views on everything from behavior change and how the pandemic has changed consumer behavior through to his favorite brands, through to how advertising needs to change and marketing needs to change to go further, developing collaborative knowledge bases uh, and providing more value, moving beyond uh, kind of billing by the hour to, to bring more proactive thinking. And then finally, such amazing things as why a bacon sandwich restaurant would disrupt the entire London restaurant scene. I will say, one of the things he knows a lot about is food. And if you are hungry, might be best to come back to this episode later. So without further ado, please enjoy our episode with Rory Sutherland. Hey, Rory, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us. Ah, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. And Dubose, good to see you. I haven't talked to you in like five minutes. Indeed. It's always good to catch up another time in the day. I like you rocking the uh, rival swag. It's good to see. All right, let's get into it. I mean, we were saying, well, first of all, you know, it's eight minutes past the hour. We had eight minutes of really interesting thoughts from you already, Rory. I wish we could have recorded that. Maybe we'll have to recover some of that ground. But I was saying before we press record, I'd be surprised if we get through one or two questions because I know that there's so many things that the three of us um, could talk about that could easily take up 40 minutes. But let's get into it with kind of the standard question that we use. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on a brand that you're very passionate, curious, interested in right now. Uh, one brand that struck me as very, very interesting is a brand that's new in the UK called Dish Patch. And I'm always very interested in innovation in the food space, the quick service restaurant space, um, because two areas I think, you know, which are always quite ripe for experimentation in behavioural science are transportation, about which I've co-written one recent book. And also, I find the restaurant food space very interesting, partly because COVID seems to have launched a kind of Cambrian explosion of innovation in that particular space. And Dishpatch effectively takes um, pretty good, or very good actually, London restaurants, and they prepare the food chilled and ship it all over the country. So it's restaurant food delivered to your home for, I suppose, reheating in some cases and plating up and preparation. 
Uh, so the only part you have to do yourself is what you might call the last part. And in many ways, when you dig back on it, it makes more sense in a way than um, uh, takeaway food does. The business of delivering food lukewarm seems to me always a bit silly on the grounds that I don't have any shortage of uh, facilities to heat food at home. You know, if there's one thing I'm short of, it's culinary talent. It's not the ability to warm things up. I've got air fryers, ovens, got, you know, frying pans, whatever else. And um, I've enjoyed Dispatch because it's one of those things which you have to try it to appreciate it. And I think that's actually true of very many innovations. I think that, you know, now obviously as an advertising guy, I should claim that we are capable, our communication skills are such that we can always actually, um, uh, you know, deliver the promise of a new uh, product or technology to people uh, simply through our sheer communications talent. But I do think there are products which in a way appeal to the unconscious but not to the conscious in some way where there's no substitute for experience and both gusto which is a food kit delivery firm uh, with which we've done a little bit of work actually and of which i'm a pretty loyal customer and also dish patch strike me as very interesting and the third thing that interests me is the whole business of dark kitchens so the whole business where a lot of innovation isn't about assembling things it's actually disassembling things you know, so the restaurant is a full service restaurant. But what we see now is Dishoom, which is a chain of restaurants in London, I think Manchester, a few other cities in Britain, also has a dark kitchen in Brighton, which means that you can order it through Deliveroo, but there's no restaurant as such. Maybe they plan to open a restaurant later. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't find the real estate. But it's, it's a very, very interesting development, as is the very interesting development of, of meal kits. Because, of course, it's worth noting there are a lot of restaurants I love that have one location. Often in London, it's difficult to get to. One of them is Roti King. Uh, I don't know if you, anybody remembers this. It's near Euston Station. And if you're a devotee of Malaysian food and roti, there's nowhere to touch it. Now, realistically, it's only about once every six to eight weeks I can get anywhere near the place. And then there's a massive queue because it's so popular. But the ability to have Roti King food delivered for reheating to my home has been pretty transformational, I have to say. So I, I love those areas where there, where you probably have, you know, enormous amount of traditionalism, which then just gets completely disrupted by the pandemic. So innovations that would have taken 10 years to happen, more or less happen in the space of 18 months. That's been fascinating. Well, the thing that that makes me think of is a lot of innovation comes from reimagining things from scratch for the world of today, which is the reason that this podcast is named what it is. And so you could say that traditional takeaway is just kind of almost in a way, especially like a Deliveroo or Delivery Hero or um, you know one of those, it's just kind of digitizing what is an analog experience. You cook a meal in a restaurant and then through an app, you're able to deliver it at home. Whereas what you're talking about they're actually reimagining things for the world of today. Forget the assumptions of what we knew before. It occurred to me, because most of these restaurants tend to deliver their signature dish, they don't deliver the whole menu, okay? And they only deliver either once or twice a week. There's another great one called UB Chef, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant on the Isle of Wight. Because of that, there's probably considerable batch processing efficiencies in that getting a chef and a team to produce, you know, 2,000 rotis, 2,000 chicken curries is probably an order of magnitude less effort than having to do it one customer at a time. So that was actually Chairman Mao's great thing. Chairman Mao believed people should eat communally because it required less energy to, eat a, to heat a large pot than to eat to, than to heat 10 small pots because the surface area as a proportion of volume was lower. 
And so Mao had this, you know, peculiar obsession with communal eating. I don't imagine Mao's China was great if you had an allergy or an intolerance, I have to say. OK, um, no, you will eat what the rest of village number 2427 is eating. I don't care of the fact that if you're going to be projectile vomiting all night. So it wasn't great for picky eaters, Mao's China. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there there is room for actually the batch efficiency of high quality food production, uh, which probably is underexplored. In other words, we've tended to combine high quality food with individual preparation and actually high quality food with Fordist efficiencies upstream is probably quite an opportunity now. It's such an interesting point you raise there, though. I, I, I guess there's the, the idea of individual preparation and quality tied together in a consumer's mind. Do you think if you start to make it a bit more communal, it chips away at the overall perception of the value of what they're getting? So that's an interesting question, which is whether the knowledge of the fact that the thing has been prepared at scale diminishes the enjoyment is an interesting question. Um, my hunch is because it's consumed in isolation, you probably don't get that effect. It's worth noting, of course, that some of the greatest restaurants in the world, um, there are a couple in California, only have one menu. So you basically turn up, you know, there are very, very fine restaurants, which effectively, I think it's the French Laundry, is it somewhere? There are a few places in California where you turn up, Alice What's-Her-Name's restaurant was like that. You turned up and you had whatever she wanted to serve you that day. There was no question of, um, you know, of, you know, substitutions or anything like that. And so um, I think I think you can get away with it because some people argue, would argue, I think, that actually, that, you know, the very highest quality food would actually profit from uh, division of labor in that way. It's true. You know, if, it if you're making a hundred of something and you mess up three of them, you throw the three away. Whereas if you're making one of something and you mess it up, you probably try and cobble it together on the plate. It's true. There's probably something about reframing an efficiency scale as omakase, and then suddenly you're much more willing to pay for it. Beautifully done. That's a lovely thought. I mean, other areas that interest me, by the way, electric cars interest me a lot um, because I see the obstacles to electric car adoption now as being when they aren't economic, they're largely psychological. And what's been interesting to me about that is that... Um, Range anxiety is a perfectly relevant and indeed intelligent fear in the United States or Canada. Uh, in the UK or the Netherlands, for example, densely populated countries, uh, I can give you, I, I always reel off the same nine reasons, but I think, I think it's about nine. We've got 240 volts domestic power. So if you go and visit your grandmother and plug in overnight, you'll still get 70 miles of range, which is enough to get you to the nearest rapid charger. Uh, if you've got a very long drive you have to undertake in one day, uh, you know, there and back, we'd probably take the train. Americans mostly can't do that. There's very little wilderness in the UK. Very rare instance of extremely low um, uh, temperatures, which, of course, nobble the range of electric cars. If you're in kind of Idaho in the deep depths of winter, your range is going to go down about 30, 40 percent. Um, and your charging speed and capacity will fall. Um, uh, density, dense population means that actually being dependent on one charger to complete your journey with no other alternative 
very different matter. Also, you know, there's a difference between breaking your journey in Borton in the water, going to a tea rooms and having some scones while your car is charging versus spending, you know, two hours in sub-zero temperatures at a Nebraska truck stop when you just hear that a serial killer's escaped from the local federal penitentiary. You know, those are different experiences. The likelihood in the UK that you can actually find something to do to kill the time while you're charging is, you know, fundamentally different. We've got lots of small towns all over the bloody place. I completely understand why someone, you know, effectively driving through the New Mexico desert or something would feel anxious about range. To be honest, in Britain, we've inherited the fear. It's not really all that pertinent. And in fact, as a result, we're probably getting bigger batteries than we need, making the cars more expensive than they need to be in many cases. So... Rory, I'm curious to kind of, you know, we got a couple notes in here about um, your book, about some talks you've done recently, but actually I think I might just ask you, what is kind of the state of Rory Sutherland's perspective on the marketing industry right now? Maybe we start there at the highest level and then let's drill down into some of the things that I know you're passionate about. Uh, One thing is I think it's quite badly broken. I think payment by the hour has lasted so long as to create significant distortions in the way that marketing services are delivered. You know, a system like that probably doesn't matter at first, but eventually you, you know, you become over-optimized around your financial incentives. And I think uh, at some level, uh, I would see Zoom as an opportunity to reinvent the delivery of marketing services, sometimes in a one-to-many model, by the way. You know, the one of the limitations of growth and profit for the advertising industry is that we effectively solve once, sell once, if we're lucky. If we're unlucky, it's solve once, fail to sell. Now, actually, solve once, sell many times has to be a more lucrative potential model. And I think with the very technology we're using now, with what you might call B2B broadcasting, I think the potential for that is much, much greater. You know, we notice with events like Nudgestock, uh, 10th of June this year, by the way, if anybody wants to block it in their diaries, you know, we got an online audience of 40, 50, 60, up to 100,000 people. And so it's crazy not to take advantage of scale effects like that when they're possible. And so I also think that there is a still a strong muscle memory uh, in the advertising industry, which is that if you don't produce a communication, you haven't done your job. And one of the things I was very eager with with behavioural science is I saw behavioural science as being a way to deploy the magical value creation um, properties of marketing and creative thinking for companies that don't necessarily have a huge media budget. We're still overly optimised around those parts of the business that spend money on media, despite the fact that we haven't been paid on commission since about 1992. So I think there I think there is scope actually for significant reinvention in this in this market particularly post pandemic where a lot of the norms of business interaction have been disrupted for good you know we used to be a handshaking business maybe now we're a broadcasting business um uh, you know uh, maybe you know one of the reasons people say why are you doing this po- why are you doing these podcasts Rory and I go because speaking to 500 people at a time is more efficient than speaking to one person at a time and you never know you might get lucky and so I think I, I think ultimately my belief in our ability to create value is completely undiminished quite the opposite in fact but our ability to make money while adding value I'm not so confident in I have to say 
And I think it's, I was using an analogy earlier on a talk where I talked about if you're over-optimised around one or two dimensions, typically numerical dimensions like payment by the hour and cost per the hour, I mean, first of all, first of all, you've been commoditized, so you're in that dreadful death spiral of cost reduction, which doesn't really incentivize you to create value to the extent that you could, you know. But secondly, I always said it's a bit like the difference between a working dog and a show dog. OK, the working dog has been chosen and selected over generations by someone who wants the dog to perform a function and it judges the dog by how good it is at what it at, at what it's there for. OK, it's a kind of what you might call multifaceted form of appraisal. And if you look at working dogs, the Border Collie is probably the finest example. Um, I, I don't know if you're dog people at all. But, you know, dogs that are, that are descended from working dogs tend to be pretty healthy, pretty fit, pretty intelligent, everything else. The dogs that have been optimised for show conditions, you know, the pug of the world, where it's all about huge ears, small legs, tiny nose, short tail, OK? Those dogs that have been bred for what you might call three or four proxy dimensions of desirability, it's fine for the first couple of generations, doesn't do any harm at all. But over about five or ten generations, you start to get sickness, deformity, illness. And I think, you know, you might argue that the advertising industry has had payment by the hour for so long now, it's starting to develop pug-like characteristics. So, Rory, what is the fix for Cavapoos and the billing by the hour problem that we have in our industry? It's in, in defense of people who go, you know, of course, it's all about, it's very difficult to come up with alternatives because you can't entirely come up with payment by results. Um, in the sense that, one, you know, if you had did something that was spectacularly successful, you'd probably create an unbelievable problem. Um, if your payment was absolutely pro rata for the value you created. But there are also reasons where you might do a lot of work only for the work uh, not to actually, um, uh, not to happen for reasons beyond your control. And that was always the curse of advertising beforehand. You develop some fantastic campaign uh, entirely unpaid on the expectation of a lot of media spend and then their factory would burn down in some disastrous fire and you'd never get any money. And that was always the thing that beset people who, um, uh, in the age of commission, which was it was more rewarding probably overall, but there were some cases of uh, effectively catastrophe entirely beyond your control. The only thing I would say is that uh, it probably has, payment by the hour has meant that there are too many account people and too few creative people generally, uh, because it's easier to sell people who report directly to one client than people who maybe actually cross um, cross client. I think it's distorted the relative numbers in the advertising industry. And um, I think it's also probably um, made us less proactive. I think that under commission, if you could think up an idea which involved extra work but opportunity, there was a big incentive to actually go and, and uh, uh, you know, eff effectively proactively suggest ideas, solutions and so forth. And I think we've become a little bit reactive and probably, to be honest, psychologically also a little bit too deferential as well. I think we've lost a little bit of our swagger because it's now it's no longer these guys make money from the media and they agree to work with us. It's kind of dance for me, monkey boy. You know, it's 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 a fundamentally different dynamic in the relationship as well. I mean, it's mixed. I I don't have the solution. I do think there is an interesting solution, which is in um, uh, probably somewhere between the agency and the event space. 
in getting a mixture of people together to work on a problem. I think the hackathon model, uh, incredibly bright person who's just left VCCP as a planner, um, who's called Amelia Tarode. I noticed that her new agency, effectively, they discovered that the thing the clients really valued was the hackathon model. And by the way, there's a big advantage to the hackathon model, I think, which is that you can bring people in who aren't who are not only marketers. You can bring in people from operations. You can bring in people from finance. You can bring in people from new product development. OK, into a hackathon and you can create something much more multidisciplinary and it's problem solving. When I was a creative director in uh, Ogilvy and Mather Direct or Ogilvy One, as it then was, I had a rule. And I said, it, it's a terribly um, pessimistic rule, but quite often creative teams would come up with a brilliant solution to a problem, but it wasn't a pure pay and play communication solution. It involved changing the pricing, changing the distribution, doing something outside the realm of mainstream Marcoms, horrible phrase, but I used it anyway. Okay. And I always had the rule, which is that if any idea you have requires someone in marketing to phone up someone outside marketing, that idea will never happen. Now, the hackathon might be a way to actually preempt that problem by having those people in from different disciplines at the beginning. Very interesting, Tesco, I learned from Tesco that whenever they have any kind of brainstorming, it is mandatory, I think, in a Tesco brainstorm of any size, that you have two store managers. And the idea is that store managers are kind of in charge of everything and they can make things happen and they can also tell you when things can't happen because they understand the practicalities of everything. And I thought that was a very smart thing from Tesco. You have to have these two store managers who have to come in and both provide you with sanity, which is not a bad thing in a hackathon. Otherwise, you can tend to get into sort of delusional territory. But they can also, if they like an idea, they just go, well, OK, I'm going to try that in my store. I think there was a brilliant one, which was an idea about changing the labelling so that when you mark down sandwiches, you only had to stick the new price label on once rather than twice. You know, that was one of the ideas that emerged from one of those things. Because I think the barcode was on a separate, the barcode might have been on the hypotenuse and the price label might have been on the baseline. And so every time you change the price of a sandwich, you had to cover up both, I think. <laughs> I think it's such an interesting point you raise there about the, the implementation of the ideas, often holding ideas back. I, I guess one of the things I'd be curious to know a bit more about as well is, I, I think, is marketing holding itself back sometimes from scaling based on the idea of approaching every problem fresh? I think one of the things I think you've spoken about before as well is uh, the ability to kind of stand on the shoulder of experience, the idea of collective knowledge within the industry. You look at something like law or something like medicine, and, and there's a real understanding that the things that have come before can help to inform new well, solutions. Well, that's, that's my major hope for behavioral science, because by codifying findings and by finding recurring patterns... It makes it much, much... We do a thing in the behavioural science practice here called lateral category analysis. And it's based on a kind of slightly the insight from TRIZ, which is your problem has probably already been solved. It's just been solved in a category different to your own. OK. And so one of the things we try and do is we try and codify clever ideas. Now, you know, an interesting example, OK, which was basically waiting to be had, just as every time I meet anybody from a large... Um, uh, uh, multinational uh, food and beverage firm, I asked them, why has nobody done the Nespresso of tea? Okay, because it seems to be such a screamingly obvious category crying out for innovation. 
okay? Just as I was asked that, I, I spent a few years going, I couldn't understand why so few people, now Tesco has now done it with Club Card Plus, but so few people copied that Amazon Prime model, you know, which is you make a commitment, okay? It costs you money, but in return, you will get recurring savings, which increase with the extent of your loyalty and, and frequency of purchase, okay? Now, actually, without Amazon Prime, Amazon probably wouldn't have any super frequent customers because, you know, whereas 10 people don't mind paying for delivery once a month, one person isn't going to pay for delivery 10 times a month. But it always struck me that the Amazon Prime model was one which almost anybody could adopt. Airlines could. Actually, EasyJet did, but that was partly me. So I was the co-inventor of a thing called EasyJet Plus, where you paid about £80 a year. And it meant that when you flew, you tended to get the upfront seating. And a, was it a bit of baggage allowance? About, I think you've got speedy boarding and upfront seating uh, route every time for free. So it was a kind of Amazon Prime for EasyJet. And um, but it's it's surprising to me how few people have attempted to replicate that, I have to say, because it strikes me as, you know, a very clear pattern. It, how it works is patently say, you know, clear. And that strikes me as odd. And so I think one of the great things about behavioral science is by codifying data only gives you the what behavioral science gives you the why. And if you know the why, you can see recurring patterns in human behavior and preference and so forth. And you can. What it enables you to do is to enjoy that efficiency of redeploying an idea from one place to somewhere else. And I don't think advertising, which was overly focused on the brand level of decision making, not that brands aren't important, but they're not the only game in town. OK, um, brands are hugely important, but nonetheless, you know, not every uh, problem is a brand problem necessarily. You know, it could be a channel problem or whatever. OK. So I think there's something really important there, which is that um, uh, the ability to effectively stand on the shoulders of giants, if you like, or to build on past experience, I think is made possible by behavioural science because it has this kind of Linnaean system of classifying and codifying different behavioural tendencies or um, anomalies. So, Rory, I'm, interesting, I'm interested to, um, to take the conversation around behavioural science <clears throat> down a level and try to make it actionable for people listening. So with everything that you know, everything that you see going on, for folks listening who are maybe familiar with the term, but w certainly aren't the expert that you are, and maybe don't yet have or don't see how they have an easy way to apply it in the work that they do and for their own careers, what's your advice for how people should get a little bit more exposed to this topic and how they should start to apply it in the work that they do? I mean, one way is there are non-residential, you know, part-time master's programs in it, which I, I would generally recommend, uh, because I think one year is enough. You know, I don't, you know, I don't think you need to do a PhD. I don't think you need to give up work and go on a residential program for two years. Um, I think one year is enough. And I don't think it's particularly difficult to grasp. It just requires you to let go of three preconceptions simultaneously, which is why people find it difficult to get into the behavioural science mindset. Overall, I think um, books are probably the answer. You know, read Cialdini, read Dan Ariely, you can read my book, um, several copies if you like. Um, but uh, generally, I think this is something where, you know, literally 10, 15 hours of study, provided you're prepared to loosen up and let go of existing preconceptions about how the mind works, uh, about human perception, about 
um, you know, uh, the idea that market research, that people can necessarily tell you uh, what it is they want and what they're willing to pay for. Um, as long as you start loosening up and become aware of, you know, the, the, the fact that actually value is created in the head, it's not created in the factory. And therefore, you can transform the value of something, not by changing the thing itself, but by changing its meaning. This is very, actually very William James, to be honest. You know, if you change the meaning of something, you change our emotional response, which means you change our behaviour and you change its value. An example I always give, which is always strikes me as slightly weird, but I don't know what you're like on KFC. I personally like it a lot, okay? But one thing that's always fascinated me is I've never thought about KFC the same way uh, ever since I discovered that Colonel Sanders was 65 years old when he founded the company. Now, it's utterly irrelevant at one level, isn't it? Okay, why should my enjoyment of fried chicken be even remotely altered by the fact that I know this guy had effectively spent a labour of love producing this 11 herbs and spices recipe. And then at the age of 65, he started effectively franchising it. And so, you know, there's a lovely story there about late stage entrepreneurialism. You know, I mean, what a guy. There's a wonderful thing on YouTube you've got to watch, which is um, where sometime in the 60s, it must be the 60s because... Uh, one of the one of the panelists is actually murdered shortly after the Kennedy assassination, so it must be the early sixties. Colonel Sanders is on What's My Line, okay, and he's elderly already then. And what is utterly hysterical about Colonel Sanders? It's a black and white broadcast um, from I guess sixty two. You have this guy who is probably one of the ten most recognisable icons in the world walking on in a white suit with a bootlace tie with the specs, and there are three people trying to guess what the hell he does, okay. <laughs> and, and that you know but it is strange how what something means our associations our narratives uh, our stories our perception basically change the whole product you know we don't perceive things objectively evolution did not give us eyes that are like light meters and ears that are like recording equipment it gave us highly interpretive sensory organs and also the way in which we treat the incoming data from those sensory organs is extraordinarily selective and indeed distorting because it's optimized around survival not around accuracy and once you understand that it becomes much much easier to see what's going on but you have to let go of a few sort of cherished assumptions before you can make that shift and that's why I probably recommend, you know, the way I got into it, to be honest, I was ill for a couple of weeks. That was the huge boost. I, ha I had really, really bad flu. And I was off work for about 10 days and just got reading economics books, then behavioural economics books, then economics blogs. And that was how I discovered something sometime in like 2006, 2007, that Nudge had come out in the US. Hadn't come out in the UK. I took the extravagant step of ordering it by FedEx from Amazon.com. And so as a result, I had one of about the first five copies in the UK. You know, David Cameron and his advisor, Rowan Silver, were two of the other owners. And I realised, OK, this is I've worked in direct marketing now for, you know, getting at that stage, I suppose it would have been for about 15 years. And I thought this is the discipline I've been missing all my life. I was always convinced there was this scientific discipline or area of inquiry, which, which I used to call the thing for which we have no name. Uh, which was, a, you know, effectively it was the science of human action and decision making. 
And as it happened, I should have maybe, you know, if I'd Googled more actively, I would have discovered pre-existing people like Herbert Simon going back to the 1940s and 50s and so on. But it was a kind of epiphany because I finally realised that I wasn't completely mad that there were other people who found this curious and wanted to know more about it. It's fascinating. And sometimes it does take that something to knock you out of your routine to shift your perspective. Yeah. David Ogilvy actually suggested taking a sicky day. David Ogilvy actually recommended taking a day ill a few times a year just to, you know, just for the purposes of the random break. And also, I think the other reason he recommended it is so you could see what people were watching on television during the day. You know, you could see what it was like to live, for example, you know, 1950s housewife existence or, you know, what life was like from nine to five when you were normally in the office. But, um, yeah, I think I think, you know, just as a pandemic probably accelerated innovation in quite a few fields. Partly because unusual, I think it's partly because unusual circumstances provide permission to fail, by the way. I think it changes people's attitude to risk. If you have, you know, it's rather like necessity being the mother of invention. Uh, You have a license to fail um, and a license to experiment during or after a significant collective worldwide incident that you don't have under conditions of optimal success. We're such creatures of habit. Like humans just are. And we like to think that we're so creative and freewheeling and we'll do whatever we want. But maybe you have the stats I don't. I'm sure 99% of how we spend our time is routine. And routine is really good for delivering incremental improvement, but not for exponential improvement or thinking of something new and different. And so you need to get out of the routine if you want to discover something new like that. And the second thing, the second thing as well as habit is social copying which is you just go with the flow of social defaults. And so that's, I think, why there's a sigmoid curve to the adoption of new technology, which is as time goes on, more people become habituated to the new technology, but also it becomes less and less socially unusual to use it. You know, I think I think the adoption of video conferencing would have happened anyway without the pandemic. I also think, barring something like another pandemic or a mass transit strike, uh, I think it would have taken 10 years, at least. And we, by the way, we forget this. It's only old people who realise this, that all technology is really slow at the beginning. Television, mobile phones, as I said, multi-channel television. Um, there is always a period of quite a few years. This is why I think video conferencing, a lot of people are talking about the metaverse. And I keep going, yeah, but the metaverse is a few years out, OK? Video conferencing is here right now. The world's had a sudden crash course in how to use it. We should be reinventing our business around this technology every bit as much as retailers reinvented their business around the internet. Um, and I, I do not, it does slightly annoy me when people are always obsessed with what's seven years out. Um, an awful lot of that stuff ends up going it's nowhere. It's so true. Anyway. I mean, I, I guess when we talk about behavioral science, one of the things I'd be intrigued to know is where do you see consumer behavior going post-pandemic? We've talked a lot about innovation and the ability to ride the headwinds of the disruption of of COVID. But I think there is also the idea of behavioral inertia. People may go back to what they did before. Where do you see this going? I don't... uh, Now, interesting, I'm probably going to disagree with that for the most part, in that had the pandemic lasted two weeks, yeah, okay, and uh, Roger L. Martin uh, has written a very good thing on this. He said, everybody's saying you want staff to go back to the office as though it's the resumption. OK, 
Okay, now he says after two years of a completely different habit and a completely different set of social norms, it's not, you're, what you're asking them to do is not to resume an old behaviour. You're asking them to adopt a behaviour which feels completely new. And so, you know, uh, actually going, getting people to go back to the office now is really not a question of saying, hey, you remember 2019, it's like that. You can't unlearn what you've learned over these last two years. So I don't think it is a resumption at all. I think it's actually asked. <laughs> two weeks ago, I went into London. I live just outside London, just outside the M25 in Kent. And two weeks ago, I went into London for various reasons, five days in the week, all five days. And by Thursday, I was going, this is fucking ridiculous, right? I'm not doing this again. And I sort of rang up my PA and said, I don't want any more weeks like this. It's just absolute bollocks. You know, I can't get anything done because I'm always moving about. What it is, is that, of course, perception is comparative. And when something's normal, you've never known anything else. You keep on doing it. But now we know what the alternative feels like. And that changes what going into the office feels like. Because uh, previously, what I always say is that, you know, commuting was coke and working from home as dr pepper and now you know in other words it's the default social norm you you don't have to explain when you ask for a diet coke do you, you ask for a doctor diet a, a diet dr pepper you've kind of got a people go you know and now actually to be honest video calling is now coke and going into the office is a bit dr pepper it's a good way to think about it. It's, it's funny, growing up in Alabama, uh, you say Diet Coke or Coke, and then they say what type, and then you say Dr. Pepper. So it's it's a bit more the category default. Oh, oh no, you're absolutely right. Sorry, because it's a, it's a Texan brand, isn't it, from Waco? And I noticed this in New Mexico and Texas, you basically have Coke or Dr. Pepper. You don't have Pepsi at all. And that's the same in Alabama, is it? It, it, goes, the other, it goes in the other direction. It just, it's, it's not made it that far down yet. It's going to revolutionize the state when it makes it there one day. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, Rory, we're almost up on time. The last thing I'd like to get your thoughts on is, you know, I mentioned what we're really interesting, interested in is understanding how challenger brands grow and actually one level deeper within that, why some challenger brands kind of create a bit of a buzz and some actually change the category that they're in. So uh, maybe I can just leave it there and just love to get your thoughts I mean, on what do you think it is. Sometimes, by the way, the fantasy is always to create your own category, but it's not easy to do, okay? Particularly because our brains are often comparative and we can't, we can't really envisage things properly in some cases except in relation to something else. Yeah, and I think a lot of businesses that say they're creating a category aren't really. It's a bit more of the pitch because actually the job that they're doing for the customer is the same and they're swapping an alternative. They might not see themselves as a competitor, but I think there's lesser true category creators out there than you know many challenger businesses think what would you give as a great example of a, a of something that genuinely and recently created a lot of buzz and noise um obviously they're the delivery services that's interesting you know that's been a recent thing um they um, britain london in particular is very good for fintech and there have been some successes there um I mean, that's a famously difficult thing. Uh, to some extent, I think the hype cycle is true, that in fact, um, when things are at their noisiest is often before they've really started to deliver value at scale. Uh, particularly that's true of network goods. You know, you need to reach a certain scale of adoption uh, before you, you really deliver proper value. It's, it's interesting how, how many um, 
how many entities. One thing I do notice is that when I made that observation that many of the most successful brands, in fact, most of the most successful brands uh, created over the last 20 years didn't really make sense in advance. You could post-rationalise their success, but you couldn't really pre-rationalise it. If you imagine your way back to 19. 88 okay you can't really say you know you wouldn't really have predicted the need for red bull or the need for five guys or nespresso or whatever or even bottled water actually if you go back to the um if you go back to the 1970s uh, i grew up in the welsh borders in the 1970s and buying water in a bottle was a deeply weird thing to do you could go to a delicatessen and do it but very few people did and so no one would have predicted those things in advance and this is why capitalism is better seen as a discovery process than it is a an efficiency optimization process. This is what I think modern economics gets wrong. It's obsessed with efficiency rather than discovery. I think there is an aspect where things that are slightly nonsensical, things that we don't expect, things that don't seem entirely logical, do have the strange compensating advantage of garnering a lot of our attention. I think there's, there is, there was a great book by Seth Godin called Purple Cow. And he essentially said you should design products with their own, what you might call their own distinctive source of attention. In other words, products which are attention generative by their very nature. And sometimes I think that means building things into the product which a finance director or a rational software expert might find ridiculous or awful you know you build in something that doesn't that that is you know that is gratuitous um uh, what an example of that would be you know the free fry the free fries at five guys you know broadly speaking if you want people to notice you the power to do things that your financial director hates isn't actually is probably an essential place to start because things that are noticeable, things that convey meaning, convey meaning precisely because they're not necessary. They're not expected. They're slightly gratuitous. You know, and, um, you know, it's, it's rather like that weird thing of gender reveal parties, which I understand was actually invented by a YouTuber sometime in the uh, presumably early 2000s. You know, I, it's something I'd never heard of. And they became more and more ridiculous where they were creating forest fires because people would always have, you know, they'd always go out into the desert and have some sort of firework to announce the gender of their child. And the next thing you know is that 47 square miles of California was on fire. But <laughs> um, <coughs> we instinctively know this, I think, that people notice things that are, you know, politeness is actually discretionary effort. It's going above and beyond the level of effort that is necessary to be acceptably, you know, um, reasonable to someone. And I'm always intrigued by those things like, you know, the double tree cookie and the extra scoop of fries at Five Guys and the uh, the popsicle hotline at the Magic Castle Hotel in Los Angeles. Those things, it strikes me, there's a lot more room for those kind of things. It, it's interesting your. Uh, comments about you have to do things that your finance director dislikes. It reminds me of, um, well, DuBose and I actually shared this client when we were on the agency side together, but we had a client who used to say, I want to see at least one example that makes me uncomfortable in everything that you present. Because if everything's comfortable, if everybody says yes, if nobody has a problem with what you're doing, then fine, but it's probably not going to lead to something new. So I think that's an interesting nugget to continue all the food metaphors here yeah, it was very for funny, people which to was think a about. A colleague of mine was also at an advertising agency review session 
and the agencies with which they they were most content with the work received the lower scores for being easy to work with. And he actually had to turn to them and say, does it not occur to you that this may be correlated? You know, that there's elements to necessary awkward squad in producing anything that's significantly noticeable that obtains cut through. And I think I think that's probably fair. And there is also, as I said, an element of kind of almost whimsical, gratuitous, you know, bloody mindedness in that you, you provide something which... I mean, I, one thing that does interest me in terms of pattern recognition is if you look at five guys, OK, who would have thought you could actually have an outlet that was more basic than a branch of McDonald's? I mean, less less blingily furbished than a branch of McDonald's and yet charging, getting on for £10 for a burger. But they're quite clever because the burger's really expensive and the signature milkshake is really expensive. Everything else is like free refills, free toppings, um, extra scoop of fries for free, free peanuts. OK, everything else is quite cheap. And it occurred to me that there's a psychological insight there, which is we don't mind paying for the hero product because with the hero product, we think you get what you pay for. But with the ancillary products, that's different. And my, my advice to anybody listening is, I think if you opened a restaurant in London called Bacon Sandwich, and it only sold bacon sandwiches, you might have a choice of bread, a choice of bacon. You'd also build in, by the way, a really whimsical thing. There's a thing called Thrashers, I think, in... Uh, let me get this right. Is there a place called Ocean City, Maryland? Is that right? You're an American. So, yeah. OK. And there are three branches of this Thrashers place, which only sells French fries. OK. And it refuses to supply ketchup. It will only give you vinegar. OK, now that's one of those things. And funnily enough, they were an inspiration to Five Guys when Five Guys got started. Um, and they're obsessed about where they get their potatoes from. They're obsessed about how they cook them, how they fry them. But then they have this really weird rule, which not so weird in the UK, but in the US, no ketchup, no mayonnaise. You can have vinegar and you can have salt and then you can piss off. That's really extreme. I mean, that's fighting talk, right? And, you know, what you do is you do some weird thing in bacon sandwich, which is brown sauce will be free, but you charge 50 pence for ketchup. OK, you just do something, just just something which shows that this isn't just all about catering for the consumer. I'm doing something for love here and I have a sense of committed belief in what I'm doing. And I, I happen to believe that brown sauce is a natural accompaniment to a bacon sandwich, whereas ketchup is an aberration. OK, now a lot of people disagree doesn't matter you know and then what you do is you'd only sell you know you'd only sell two drinks which is like builder's tea and champagne right would be the two drinks you'd sell all right you know literally and i think i think you you know i think you can take that pattern that you you isolate in five guys and you can't rep you can't copy it but you can make it rhyme and I think that's where behavioural science, I think you're absolutely right, provides us with an opportunity to innovate much more effectively by spotting and codifying those kind of slightly counterintuitive aspects that somehow make something, make something stick, make something stand out. And it probably means taking one facet of something and exaggerating it quite a lot, you know. Well, I'm hungry now. So we've at least accomplished that. Sorry, but I think there's too much no, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Rory, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate, we really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us. If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, your book, what's the best place for us to send them to? 
Well, I'm doing actually um, a course uh, called Mad Masters, which is a 12-part course which will kick off around about in May. Uh, quite expensive, but worth it, I should say. You know, frame it right. Um, uh, also, if anybody's got any kind of after-sales feedback, um, Twitter, at Rory Sutherland, is the perfect place to contact me. Great. We'll include both those links in the show notes. All right, Roy, we'll let you get back to your day and hopefully a bacon sandwich at some point. Yep. Thanks again for Fantastic. coming on. Thank you ever so Take much. Care. All the best. Thank you, Roy. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.